Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Most of you know, you may be seated, you did a really good job there. You know, I, I didn't know after so long apart if you'd remember, but hey, you got it. It's great. Those of you who uh, are new to River Bluff today, we have a few. Um, many have said, though, that you've been watching uh, online, so you are aware that we've been in a series that we uh, started a while back um, entitled uh, Beating the Odds. And this morning, I want to I close the series. Uh, we could go on and on and on. Uh, th- this series has really been about looking back at the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah with the intent of building in our hearts this firm foundation of understanding and seeing if over the course of thousands of years and through the lives of many, many different people, God revealed exactly what coming Messiah would look like so you wouldn't miss him when he came, uh, that it would forge in our hearts a confidence in our faith that this book from cover to cover can be trusted just emphatically trusted. And so I hope that's been building in you. Um, Today, I want to close the series out. Since we didn't get to be together to celebrate uh, the resurrection, I thought I would end today by doing that, that we would kind of back into uh, one of the great prophecies, I think one of the greatest Old Testament prophecies uh, about Jesus' suffering on the cross Um, and his resurrection. So we're going to be in the 22nd Psalm today. So if you want to open your Bibles there, we're going to look at how Jesus beat the greatest odds against us through the power of his crucifixion and and resurrection. And so this is how we're going to close this series out. Now this, this Psalm, this Psalm really moves us from the suffering and torment of uh, that day, uh, that, that what we call Good Friday, which was really kind of a horrible Friday for Jesus, but in, in many ways, uh, but it moves us from this suffering and torment into celebration and triumph. It does it really abruptly, as you're going to see in a minute. And In fact, this psalm actually opens with a statement that Jesus makes on the cross. And it closes, I believe... It closes with the very last word that Jesus gave before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I hope you'll see that with me um, as we go. Now, I I know that there are some Old Testament texts that when we read them, as we read them, they're a little bit difficult to understand until you put Jesus in them. And Psalm 22 is a little bit like that. It, it's kind of one of those that until you put Jesus in Psalm 22, uh, it, it's difficult. But when you put Jesus in, it, it comes to life. It starts to make sense. And so Psalms 22 is just one of those texts. And this psalm is actually quoted seven times in the New Testament. And every single time it's quoted, it's a reference back to Jesus. Now, some of you say, well, why, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that is, is it shows that the New Testament writers believe that, that this passage was an Old Testament messianic prophecy. So we see in, in John chapter 19, as Jesus is actually hanging on the cross, and the Roman soldiers are casting lots for his, his clothing, John said, this was to fulfill what the Scripture said. It, it was to fulfill that. And he quotes from Psalm 22. It goes on to talk about this messianic prophecy, and, and, and it points out what, what David says. So if you, if you have your Bible open, and you look up at the very top of Psalm chapter 22, there's a superscription there that will, will do this. It, it, it says, basically, a Psalm of David. Anybody see that in their Bible? It, it says a Psalm of David up at the top. Well, we're not denying that David wrote this. I, I believe that David wrote it. The difficulty is in... in when you go back and you look at the historical books of the Bible, there's nothing in God's Word that remotely really describes the agony of Psalm 22 ever happening in David's life. Now, David's life certainly had a lot of upheaval in it. 
And there are some people who object to Psalm 22 being looked at as a prophetic word of, of the coming Messiah uh, because they say it, it's, it really is about David. And he was just taking kind of poetic, poetic license in order to express his anguish before the Lord. Now, over the years, scholars have noticed from Psalm 22 that it gives almost as an accurate description of the crucifixion of Jesus, as did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The, the, the description is, is almost as accurate of a crucifixion. Now, somebody say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, here's the big deal. David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. David wrote this, historians tell us, 600 years before there's ever any historical record of crucifixion, crucifixion existing. It's, it's just so you know, it's weird talking to people now. It's just a little bit, just a little bit weird. I'm still trying to figure, I, I got to get back in that groove now. Um, so, but but I'm, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll get caught up. But it, it's, it's just incredible, to me amazing, that David is able to give this vivid account without ever having seen a crucifixion. Just, it, it's, it's incredible. Now, David is writing, and he's writing with this accuracy and this detail about what looks like capital punishment. And again, it's just miraculous. He had never seen anything like this. So the, the question that comes to my mind is this. How could he do that? When you read this, this passage of Scripture in the Psalms, how in the world could David describe something so clearly that he had never seen before? The Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes I think Christians think the Holy Spirit didn't exist until he showed up on Pentecost. That's not true. The Holy Spirit has always existed. Father, Son, Holy Spirit for all eternity, the three in one. That's how our God has always existed from, from forever. That's who he, who he is. And so the Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words. Now, in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit had come uh, to earth in this capacity, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 and, uh, through 31, God's Word tells us this about David. It says, David, being therefore a prophet. How many of you knew David was a prophet? Most of us just think dude was a king. Pretty good poet, you know. He could maybe sing a little bit, maybe strum a little guitar, pick something out, you know. But we don't normally think of him as a prophet. But it says, David, being therefore a prophet foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David wasn't just this poet king, he was a prophet. And here in Psalm 22, he is prophetically telling of the coming Messiah. Now, we're not going to have time to go through all uh, 31 verses here. We're going to skip some, some in the middle. We're just going to kind of dive into the front part and to the end part. But here's what I want you to know about this, this chapter. The first 21 verses are what I'd call part one, and then verses 22 through 31 are, are, are part two, and they're very different in tone. The first part is a prayer, a prayer just of anguish almost. The second part is a praise. First part is about agony. Second part is about an accomplishment. First part is a, about being deserted by God. The, the second part is about being delivered by God. First part is the torment from the cross. Second part is the triumph and victory of the cross and resurrection. So I want us to begin uh, in chapter 22, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. It says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From these words of my groaning, oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Now, Hopefully many of you do recognize that first verse is actually the fourth of seven statements that Jesus makes while he's hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, interestingly, if, if you don't know this, maybe this will be news to you. All of the statements that Jesus makes on his way to Calvary and while on the cross were always other-focused. Always other focus. And the reason that's so noteworthy is because people who are experiencing unbelievable agony almost can't think of anything but the pain that they're in. 
but your Lord, your Savior, God in the flesh, in this incredible pain, he thought of others. Let let me show you a couple of places where we see that. Uh, For those of you that maybe joined us on YouTube for Armandi Thursday uh, service, you'll recall that Jesus took a severe beating before he ever made it to the cross. It's called a scourging. Um, Some people refer to it, historians do, as the Roman half-death because many of the people who went through the scourging before the crucifixion died there. They died from the beating. That's the kind of beating that Jesus went through. So now Jesus is carrying his, his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And there are women uh, in the street and they're weeping for him. They're, they're, they're crying for him. And in Luke chapter 23, Jesus says this to them. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And then Jesus goes on to prophetically, in the condition that he's in, he prophetically gives a word of the coming fall of Jerusalem that happens in 70 AD. It literally happens. He he tells them, those of you who uh, are are pregnant, he was saying to them, you're going to wish you were barren. There's going to be a day when you're going to ask the mountains to fall on you. It's going to be that bad when the destruction comes. He was warning them. Because Jesus would focus on them. And then finally Jesus makes it to the, the place of the skull. And it's there that they drive these spikes through his wrists and, and through his feet. And the first words out of his mouth after having that, after, after they've done that and they've lifted him up and they've dropped that cross in place. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are, Father, forgive them. Others focus. They don't know what they're doing. That's who our Jesus is. Many of you know that there were uh, thieves that were being crucified with Jesus. He was placed between them, one on the left and one on the right. And one of them repented while on the cross and said, Lord, remember me. He turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your paradise in Luke 23, uh, verse 43. Remember me. And Jesus says this, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's focusing on on the needs of of that man. Then hours after hanging on the cross, Jesus looked down and at the foot of the cross, he sees his mom and the disciple John. And there they are. And John records in John 19 that when Jesus saw his mother, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. In other words, what Jesus was doing while in agony on the cross was taking care of his mother's care for the days ahead. He was, others, he was thinking about somebody else. And the Bible tells us shortly after that that a great darkness fell on the land. Non-biblical historians tell us about that darkness. They record that it could be felt. That was the words they used. I don't know what that means. I don't know how darkness is felt. But this was a darkness that was so heavy that it was felt by secular historians back in that day. Again, it's interesting to me, if you look at verse 2 of Psalm 22 in that context, look what David writes. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. See, Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's when the crucifixion began. Uh, It it ended around 3 o'clock that day when he died. But in between, darkness fell on the land. And in that night season, in, that, in that, that occurrence, Jesus was silent for a period. But then Jesus breaks that silence. And the gospel writer Mark records that for us in Mark chapter 15. He writes these words. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22.1. He's quoting that passage. And please notice this, especially if you take notes in your Bible. You may want to note this. This is the first. This is the only time that Jesus, when referring directly to his father, addressing his father, referred to him not as father, not as my father. But he used the generic, my God. See, Jesus on the cross was experiencing a distance, a distancing from God that had never happened. And instead of using my father, he uses my God. It's a cry of broken fellowship. He's experiencing a separation. 
Psalms 22.1 goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me? Why, from, from the words of my groaning. See, Jesus bore the burden not only of the crucifixion but of our sin. And that sin is what separated him from his father because, and you know this already, sin always separates. Sin separates us from one another when we sin against one another. We are seeing that in cities all around the nation right now. We are seeing the, the, the sin of racism is blowing up all around us. And God's people have to be a part of changing that through the power of the resurrection. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Now, this was not a lapse in his faith. It's not what that was. This was not Jesus has suddenly lost his confidence in the Father. I believe it was just simply a cry of disorientation. That, that Jesus had never, he had always existed in perfect, intimate relationship with his Father. Always. He had never experienced anything like this. And Jesus, Jesus spoke about that intimacy. He had never experienced anything like this until that moment on the cross. In John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, we, we see Jesus expressing that intimacy just before he, 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 God uses him to raise Lazarus from the dead. Just before he does that, it says this, And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. He, he knew that the Father and he were, were in communion, that they always communicated, that, 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 that he heard his son. Later in John chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. All of that was true until that very moment on the cross. And then he felt utterly dejected. Because he's, he's bearing the sin of the world. He's bearing your sin and, and, and my sin. He's feeling the effects of sin. And the effect of sin is always separation and fellowship. The prophet Isaiah said this, that while Jesus was on the cross, the, lay, the Lord, God, the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. All the sin of humanity, all of your sin and all of my sin, all of the, the filth from the past, the day humanity began, all the way to the very end that we've yet to see, all sin was placed on Jesus. And now he is separated, completely separated from his father. And he cries out. He cries out. Now, if, if you're looking at the cross and you're hearing these words, you know, some have asked, why, is, why was this necessary? Why, why was this anguish? Why was this sense of abandonment? Why was that needed? It fascinates me, but Psalms 22 answers that question. Look, look at verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's the reason right there. Because God, that's the reason for the cross. Because God is holy. God is perfect. Nobody else is like him. He is unique. He's just so perfect. I guess the best way to describe it would be kind of like this. God's perfection cannot mingle with imperfection. I'm having such a hard time not walking out here, just so you know. I've promised my wife I'll stay back a little more. Um, but it's, it's just this... This understanding that God is so holy and, and perfection can't, can't mingle with imperfection. Let me see if I can, can illustrate uh, this just a moment. Let, let's, say, um, let's say that you're, you don't sing very well. Is Terry walking? Yeah, there's Terry. Um, oh, did, I, did that come out of my mouth? I'm so sorry. But let's say you can't sing and um, you decide that you want to you want to, you know, you want to like, you want to go be part of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Okay, so, you know, you, you, you sing, you're, you're singing, your singing is actually so bad it's an encouragement to other people around you to sing louder. 
I mean, that, that's, that, that, that's your singing. So you go, you go to Brooklyn, you know, Tabernacle, and you, you show up at, at, at choir practice that day. And, you know, you think I'm just, I'm going up there. I'm going to croon out some tunes with these people. You know, it's just going to be a, a, a good thing. Friends, that ain't going to happen. I mean, they're at a whole nother level of professionalism when it comes to leading in worship. And so you're not, you're not going to get to sing with it. Now, you can go stand out in the street and sing along with them, but you're not going to be up there because they, they, they're working for, with something and for something. See, that, that's why Jesus had to come, because he was perfect. And there had to be this substitute that could fill in for our lack of, of perfection, the, all the imperfect ones. And we're part of that group. And, and the Bible explains, you know, in, in a verse that I think illustrates this even better than my, my singing thing did. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, God made him, talking about Jesus, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there have been tons of sermons on that, that one verse alone because there's tons of theology in there. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, our righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't show up with it intrinsically. It's imputed to you. It's given to you. And it can only be given to you by one who is truly righteous. So Jesus goes through this desertion by God. He goes through the torment of the cross. And, and, and God's word tells us that he endured all of that because he loves you. Because he, you matter to him. All your imperfect, you matter to him. Because he and his father could not stand the thought of spending eternity without you. It crushed him to think about that. So Jesus came and gave everything he had. And the Bible tells us this. That on the night before he would do that. On the night before he would suffer on that cross. On the night before that beating. That he called his closest friends together. And that he took the elements of an ancient uh, Hebrew custom. A celebration called Passover. And he took some of the elements from that, and he said, tonight I'm going to give you a new command. You know about the, the, the other commandments in the Old Testament, but I'm going to give you a new command. And, and tonight I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And Jesus instituted a new covenant that is better, the Bible tells us, than the old covenant in the law. He's going to give us a new covenant in love, in, in his blood. So he gathers the, them and so that... And he tells them that we need to remember what's going to happen tomorrow. He tells them that and, and that we need to remember that. And that as we remember it, we remember it in a very unique way. So Paul, writing to the church at Corinth about how we're to remember, he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 11. He said this, he said, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. We need to think about what we're about to engage in. And so here's what we want to do in this moment. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and, and just take your cup and hold it for just a second. Just put it in your hand. And I want to give the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. I want to give him an opportunity in this place to personally walk you through a time of introspection, a time of confession, anything that he might bring to mind, and, and you just confess it as, as he would lead you. You confess it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pause and do something called listening prayer. We're not going to verbalize prayer out loud. We're going to listen and let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. And we're going to just silently confess and agree with God about anything he brings to mind. 
Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come. We come in agreement with the words you have spoken into our heart. That we are sinners who have been saved only by the grace of God, and yet even still our sin separates us from him in fellowship. And so we don't want to enter this moment of fellowshipping with you thoughtlessly. And so we confess, we agree with you about any sin you brought to our minds. And we choose. We choose to reject that. We choose to repent of that. We choose to turn from that and come back to you. Precious Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. In this room right here, there's the sound of the wind blowing in the air conditioner. And Lord, it just reminds us of the day that you came, Holy Spirit, as a mighty rushing wind blowing over the land that day. We, we ask you to breathe over us that way afresh as we come remembering, Jesus, your sacrifice on, on this day. As we come remembering we confess to you now and we give thanks that you take our sin and push it out of your thoughts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you would to ready your communion by just peeling back the top layer and taking that little wafer out and just holding it in your hand if you would. Paul also wrote instructions to the church at Corinth he said this he said for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread and Jesus held the bread up and he gave thanks he broke it saying this is my body which is for you take and eat and do it in remembrance of me And then Paul writes these words. He said, in the same way, he took also the cup after supper. And he took this cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Jesus said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do it proclaiming, proclaiming, you're preaching. When you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to ask you where you are. Just pray a prayer of thanksgiving to Jesus for what he's done for you. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you that you were beaten, that you suffered and died, that you bore our sin in your body on that cross so that we could be righteous, right with God. Thank you, Jesus. We bless your holy name. And it's in your name we give thanks and pray. Amen. Now, while Jesus was on the cross, while he was experiencing this desertion by God, Psalms 22 goes on to tell us that he was also, starting in verse 6, it picks up here, that he was despised by people. Now, that's, that's like a whole other message. We're not going to be able to get into that today. But it, it just extended his torment that he had to endure on the cross. But I want to move us now from the torment to the triumph. So we're going to jump ahead to verse 22, and we're going to think about the cross and the resurrection that is there in uh, this psalm. You're going to notice an immediate change in verse 22. Verse 22 starts out by saying this, I will tell. I, I, I will tell. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now, again, if you go back and you read that whole 22nd psalm, you get that, man, something just happened. Something just crazy just, just took place. It's completely different language. I mean, you just go back up one verse. Just back up into verse 21, and you still see, see him crying out, Save me from the lion's mouth. Save me from being devoured. I mean, it, up until you get to verse 22, and then verse, verse 22, you know, verse 21 ends with this, though. He's, he's doing all this crying out, uh, verses 1 through 21. And, and at the end of verse 21, he says this. You have answered me. You, you have answered me. The, the prayer just completely changes. Now it's this prayer of confidence that God has heard his cry and he's answered through all the anguish, through all the pain. Oh my, you heard me. You, 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 you heard me. He did. God the Father heard Jesus. And you said, how do you know that he, he heard him? You know, here you are crying out, you're deserted by God, you're despised by men, you're distressed by all this pain. And now you say, he heard me. How? 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 Pick up in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All of your offspring of Jacob, and those are the Jews, Glorify him and stand in awe of him and all offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform uh, before those who fear him. Now, friends, I don't know what you conclude when you get to those verses, but I conclude that death is over. I conclude that the suffering is done. The sorrow is gone. And suddenly now there's life. There's something to celebrate. There's this new strength. There's, there's a declaration of praise. He says, I will tell. Now, how is it that all of this pain and despair through verses 1 through 21 can, can suddenly be gone? And, and now there's this transformation right there in verse is 22. What, what could it be? It's a resurrection. It's his resurrection. Now, some of you are saying, Joe, I'm looking at Psalm 22, and that word's not in there. Joe, you, you, you just, you're just pulling stuff out of nothing. Joe, you, you're not a magician. You can't do that. Well, I, I, I know that. Let, give me a second and let me, let me unpack it. Let me, let me show it to you. See, that word resurrection is not written in my Bible either. But it's implied in Psalm 22 and you're going to see it show up. See, the first part of the psalm is all about the one who's suffering. The last ten verses are all about the salvation this one brings. And these verses speak of a resurrection, of, of the work that had been done, the work through the suffering. 
Now, resurrection is taking place. You said, okay, Joe, show me how you do that. Well, it's in the New Testament. So if you got your Bibles and you want to you flip over to Hebrews chapter 2, you can do that. It's going to come up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11. To, I, I encourage you to go back later today and read all of Hebrews 2. Because it's, it's the context of it is the saving work of Jesus. And in the middle of that, that work, verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 2, it says this. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That source is Jesus. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and he's quoting Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This verse, this quote from Psalms 22, is smack dab in the middle of this incredible uh, scripture in in Hebrews chapter 2 about the saving power of Jesus' resurrection, about the power and triumph of the cross, and about what took place in his resurrection. And so Jesus is assured by the Father that all of the agony, all of the suffering that he endured on the cross has led, the result is the salvation of many. And as you read this, you're going to see that it starts small, and then it starts to grow exponentially. This was really so powerful to me. You see it in, in verse 22. It says, I will tell of your name to who? Who does it say that he's going to tell of his name to? Well, it starts with my brothers. He's going to start in a small group. Okay? He's going to tell people in his small group. People maybe in his household. Maybe his extended family. Start small. And then he says, I'm going to do it in the midst of the congregation. I'm going to praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And then he says, all the offspring of Judah, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all your offspring of Israel. But now jump down to verse 25. Because that was, that was about the nation of Israel. But now look at this. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. It's gotten bigger now. It's gone outside of, of just the nation of Israel. Some translations say in the great congregation. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn, turn to the Lord. It's, got, it's gone, gone to the, the circle is widening. It's getting massive. Look at this. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Then verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And then finally, verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You know who those unborn people are referring to? Usins. Use guys. Whatever language you want to use there. Okay? He's t- it's talking about, about it's as if Jesus just came and said it's, it's expanding. The followers are expanding. It starts small and it grows. Until people all around the world, those who haven't even been born yet, are going to be impacted by what he did on the cross. See, when Jesus rose from the dead before returning to heaven, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 gives us something that he told his followers. And he told them this. He said, you're going to take this message. This good news of my resurrection, of that power. You're going you're gonna to proclaim it, this gospel, beginning in Jerusalem. And then you're going to go to Judea. And then you're going to go to a place you don't want to go, Samaria. And then ultimately you're going to go to the end of the earth. And if you read that, that's the same outline as Psalm 22. I mean, it's the, it's the same kind of outline. Talking about posterity and those who aren't even born yet. And that should be exciting for you personally. And here's the other thing that should have psyched you about that. Is that means you were never an afterthought with God. What that that verse says is God God had you in mind when Jesus was on the cross. In fact, the Bible tells you before the foundations of the world were laid, he was thinking about you. He was planning your, your salvation. You're not an afterthought to God. It's not like God was walking along one day and saw you down there and said, Oh, well, come on in. No, he's, he's been thinking about you. I believe that while Jesus was on the cross, he was others-focused. I think he was thinking about you. I think in that season of silence there on the cross, when darkness fell, I think he was thinking about you. I love that song that says, while he was on the cross, I was on his mind. I believe that to be so true, that you were there. He was thinking about why he was doing it, and it was you. And that's what makes Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, make sense. 
Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. How in the world could anybody on the cross experience joy? How, how is that even possible under those conditions that that agony, the scorn and hatred of people rejected by us? How could anybody have the slightest inkling of joy? His joy, his joy was you. His joy was you. His joy was you. His joy was you. You were that joy that he had while he was on the cross. He, he saw that his suffering and his shame were, had a saving effect all over the world. And Jesus was on the cross. He said, I'll endure crucifixion for you because of that joy set before me. I don't know about you, but that just makes me want to praise his holy name. Just, I mean, that, if you didn't want to say thank you a minute ago to Jesus, I hope you do now. I hope you just want to, want to thank him for what, what he did. And I want to just bring your, your thoughts back to this last verse, back to Psalm 31. It says, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Look at this very last phrase. That he has what? He has done it. That he has done it. Now those are five English words. That he has done it. Okay? The Hebrew translation of those five English words is one Hebrew word. It's the word asa'ah. And asa'ah can be translated, having completed, having done it, or it is finished. It can be translated that way. It is, it is finished. Do you remember Jesus' last word on the cross? It gets translated as three English words, it is finished. But Jesus' last word, the Greek word that got translated, it is finished, was the word tetelestai. The Hebrew word translation is asa'ah. And it all means it is finished. You can read about it in John 19.30. That was the last thing Jesus cried out. He's quoting this psalm. Some of the translations, the Amplified translation, actually translates that last phrase that way. It is finished. It, it, it is done. Friends, what, what that means is it's, it's over. And one of the things that God longs for, Jesus longs for, is that you and I would rest in that reality. That we would give up trying to fix ourselves and make ourselves right with God because we can't. Only, only Jesus can and Jesus knows that about us. He knows that you can't, can't fix yourself. That's why he came and died for you. Because he knows you, you can't make anything right. And so what that means is you can cease your striving. You, you can quit trying to climb out from under shame. Because Jesus will set you free from all of that if you will let him. He wants you to rest in him. He wants you to rest in the finished work of the cross. He wants you to experience the power of resurrection, not just when you die and go to heaven, but in this life. But see here, that only comes when you first put your trust in a sacrificial death that it can make you right with God. You have to put your whole trust there. You have to repent of thinking that you can make your way to heaven on your own, that, that you can figure out how to get to God. Only then, only then, will you be able to start to live in resurrection power and friends. If our world ever needed to see the power of the resurrection in living color, lived out in humanity, it's today. The resurrection power of Jesus needs to be unleashed in our city. It needs to be unleashed in our nation. It needs to start being unleashed in our homes. See, the only hope of the gospel is going to be displayed through the power of resurrected lives. That's the only thing that can battle and fight back racism. It's the only thing that will ever battle and fight back hatred and injustice in our world. It is the power of the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus has been raised from the dead to give you new life. 
It's the only thing that will change. My heart has been heavy this week. Some of yours have too. My heart has been heavy for the family and friends of George Floyd. My, my heart has been heavy this week, but I'm, I'm not without hope. Though, though my heart is heavy, my heart is heavy for my black brothers and sisters who live in fear, live in pain, live in frustration, live in anger. My heart is heavy, but it's not hopeless. My heart is heavy for the first responders all around our nation who have been having to respond uh, to, to fires and crime in the midst of chaos and violent protests. My heart is heavy that after all the hashtagging about, about, about George and his family and, and all the hashtagging about Ahmed Aubrey, when, when the hashtags die, that nothing will have changed. My heart is heavy about that. My heart is heavy for homeowners and business owners who were just starting to reemerge, start to be able to make a living again, who are going to be set back because their businesses have been destroyed now. My, my heart is heavy from lamenting and, and praying and crying over racial tensions in our country that are killing us, the lasting damage that it does and has done. My heart is heavy over knowing that racism is satanic in all its forms because it attacks the image of God that every human being bears. It attacks that. And my heart has been heavy this week because of a sense that many followers of Jesus don't care enough to speak into this. And I'm not talking about going downtown and necessarily marching and getting caught up in all of that. But I'm talking about using your life and your voice to when you see it, say something about it. Call, call it out. But let it start in your own heart. It may have to be called out of our hearts first. See, my heart is heavy, but I have hope that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that he says lives in us, can change the world still. I, st I still believe that. My heart is heavy, but I have hope that that same power can come. My heart is heavy, but I have hope that I have hope that I'm not who my past says I am. I have, my heart's heavy, and I imagine yours is some days that you feel like your past defines you. It doesn't have to, because that same power can set you free. My, my heart is heavy, but my hope is strong that I don't have to listen to the voice of the world, the, my flesh, or the devil when it tells me that I am less than I am because I'm a child of God, and I can do all things through Christ. That's where my hope is, and I hope that's where your hope is. And as a, as a people of God, as the church, if we're going to see things change out there, they got to change in here, and they got to change in here. And that can only happen if we have a new Pentecost in our souls, when we let the Holy Spirit have his way. And when we do that, and not before, only when we trust in God's word that tells us as his people, his people, called by his name, that we will humble ourselves, that we will pray that we will seek his face, that he'll heal our land if we repent, if we turn from our wickedness. So you can't seek his face till we do that. But when we do that, his promise is that same power that raised Jesus, that lives in us, can be unleashed. And we can see transformation come. And we can see it only because the work is finished. It is finished. That power, if you're in Christ, lives in you. You have it. I have it. We have to let it out. Pray with me. Father God, we come.
because we desire for the finished work of Jesus Christ to, to live not just in us as it does, as you have promised, but to live out of us. God, we want the, the power of the resurrection, that new life that we're to tell everybody about, first in the congregation, then to the world and to those yet unborn. Jesus, we come. That same power, we want to we thank you for it, but we want to let it out. Let it out of our lives into the world so we come. We come as your church rededicating ourselves. We come as your church lamenting over our own sin. We come, we come lamenting over our sin of looking the other way when we should have said something. We come confessing and lamenting over our sin because, Jesus, we want. We want as we seek your face to see our land healed. And we know that you want to use us. So we come. We want to see your power, the power of your resurrection released. We want to see you, oh God, turn, turn darkness into light. Infuse light in. And we want to see even in our own lives that we don't, we don't live as the world calls us. but We live the way that you say we are. We want to be your people that way. And so we come now, Jesus, to worship you, giving thanks. We pour out our hearts, longing for that power to come. Flow out of us now, Jesus. If you're here today, or if you're in the sound of my voice, and you've never trusted Christ, he died for you. You were on his mind. And he wants you to surrender your life to him right now. And you can do it where you're at. You don't have to have a preacher in front of you. You can do it there in your home. You can do it right there in that chair. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord with a heart that believes that he died to save you from your sin. And that you want to trust him and turn from trying to make things right yourself. You want to repent of your sin. God's word says he'll receive you. We come, Lord Jesus, to you now. We come to celebrate. We come to give thanks. We come to cry out to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.